Welcome to the Angel Comedy Podcast, James Loveridge edition. James Loveridge, if you don't know who James Loveridge is, is a fantastic comedian that was um, live and performing from around 2008 to 2018. He still performs a bit, as you'll hear from the podcast, but um, he has a huge amount of wealth and experience. He's brilliant on stage. One of the first people to... MC Angel Comedy that wasn't me so like I was MCing Angel Comedy maybe for the first three years pretty much just me or Katerina Vrana and um, yeah he was one of the first people that we trusted with the MCing of the night uh, both him and Masood Milas we trusted him because he is a both proficient professional great at what he does and um, uh, somebody that's able to play to a crowd of 200, 200 rugby players or uh, 200 hipsters. He, he's really charming on stage. He also is one of the resident MCs or was one of the resident MCs for Spank, which is a late night show in Edinburgh, which is goes a bit balmy. It's from like one in the morning till four in the morning. And he talks about that in this interview. Uh, there's some amazing things in this interview, but one of them that I particularly find useful and I think will be supportive for people is the transition of a comedian from knowing that they can do something to choosing to continuing to do that thing so James was a professional professional comedian for a good five or six years but going up and down the country and doing it as well as anybody else and then had to make a decision about how he wanted his life and lifestyle to be and so to to hear him talk of that journey is is a I think really for, for me I find it very supportive one of the things you're hearing in podcasts and with um, we're talking to comedy industry professionals you often you know it's slanted to talking to those people that are successful hugely successful um, because that's who everyone on podcasts wants to um, talk to it doesn't necessarily talk to the people that the majority of comedians are that aren't necessarily on TV or massively successful but are doing it day in day out it's a hundred percent they have made it as a comedian and then making it as a comedian is phenomenal making it as an artist getting paid for what you do and love is phenomenal but then in the day-to-day freelancer lifestyle of living month to month getting your rent paid and having to sometimes juggle a full-time job or part-time job at the same time the practical realities of doing that month on month year on year aren't really spoken about too much people like to end game it and, and talk about how they did it and all of the hard times in the past but you very rarely talk to somebody that would was was doing it and actually made a decision on the other on the other side I love doing this but the cost to my life were these other things and so I decided to make a slightly different decision than Ramesh Nathan might have made or um uh you know Sarah Millican might have done or just their career took them a different way their passions took them in a different way and yeah and I think there's something 
incredibly supportive and interesting and insightful about that to hear somebody that's very good at what they do make slightly different decisions if only because it supports the fact that there are different ways to doing this as a profession and there are different routes in and out of the industry so um so yeah i i mean i don't want to lead you into what to think about about it and um you know james is really interesting to listen to from lots of perspectives both as a as a live performer and the journey that i mentioned there but I hope you enjoy it, and um, and yeah, if you do have any thoughts or feedback uh, around it, or you know, insights from your own journey doing doing stand up, or your own thoughts about what a stand up is, or uh, a performer is meant to think, you know, some people think a performer is meant to do or die. You know, I think there's a Bill Burr quote of like, you know, I'm I I would live on a mattress for the rest of my life in a squat just to be able to perform comedy, and I think that is um, that is a thought that a lot of people have, like, I'll do it or die, but. I, I also think there's a practical reality of like, well, it would be nice to have a family or, you know, after about 10 years living on a mattress in a squat, maybe you might want to make other decisions. But um, or, or, you know, you can that's the other thing. You can be out there knocking it out of the park every single night of the week, but you might not be getting commensurately paid for it, um, which is, uh, you know, another aspect of it all. Anyway, I uh, I hope you enjoyed the um, the chat with James and I will speak to you at the end of this conversation with the brilliant James Loveridge. James Loveridge, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good, thanks, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're good. You've got your lockdown beard on, just like myself. (laughs) uh, You've been to Angel Comedy a lot over the years, but from people that might not have seen you there, might not have seen you performing elsewhere, or might not be aware of you, how would you uh, describe your kind of... Uh, who you are and what you do to people. So, um, yeah, I'm, I was a stand-up comedian for 10 years. Um, I did kind of anecdotal, self-deprecating stories. Um, it was just more of an extension of like a larger-than-life version of myself, really, just telling true stories of things that happened to me um, and evolved from making people laugh in the pub and in friendship groups and telling like more and more outrageous stories from stupid things that I'd done and then moved it onto onto stage. So um yeah, I did that for 10 years, uh gigged all over the world, did multiple shows at Edinburgh, uh got nominated for best show one year, but not in the proper awards by the Amuse Moose Awards. But you know, uh very few people <laughs> seem to know the difference. So I just say best show. Um oh I need to turn off my notifications so that doesn't happen. Um and then that was the Amuse Moose, that was Hills Jago saying, excuse me, I think you'll find it is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I, I did a, I, and I also hosted a late night show Spank for for six years, uh, which was um, fantastic experience. And yes, yeah, so I, I did that for ten years. Uh, I also hosted a lot of um, live interactive kind of game show things, uh, and which end up being quite a lot of kind of corporate based stuff, uh, musical bingo and gospeloki and uh, a lot of stuff with a company called It's Un. Uh, it's unknown um and uh, yeah and now i am a director of entertainment at a digital agency called little dot studios where i've been for the last eight or nine years uh which is a career i ran in parallel to being stand-up um which kind of in recent years has come full circle and i'm working very closely with a lot of the kind of biggest uk comedians so running social uh, video accounts for Michael McIntyre Jimmy Carr and a whole plethora of about 15 or 16 kind of big UK stadium fillers 
Yeah, there's so that's like a whole. In in some ways, it's it's interesting. Well, in a lot of ways, it's interesting because you've gone professional at what at making comedy and you know not just making it but facilitating it and being around like that um one of the reasons why i think it's really interesting to talk to you is that kind of you know a lot of the people that you're working with in your inverted commas day job right now and let's face it anybody that's getting paid for stand-up is their day job Mm. which you have it's been your day job as well but you'll be working with i don't know whoever jamali maddox or um dame baptiste or i don't know harriet kelmsley or whoever else is coming in and they know you from the circuit primarily and they're like oh james what are you doing here it's like oh well this is i'm i'm running a a comedy um youtube channel i'm i'm you know a massive one little dot that works with amazon and um you know huge i'm i'm using amazon because it's the only one i can remember but there's loads of other universal yeah, so we, we 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 run uh in the entertainment department which i kind of oversee we're working with like nbc universal sony we run the graham norton show channel all of gordon ramsay's channels um Work with Hot Sauce, so the Jonathan Ross show and um, open mic. So yeah, a plethora of like the last leg and things like that. So it's a it's a whole gamut of uh, of comedy as well as broadcasters, sort of Viacom, CBS, Comedy Central, and we work with Amazon Prime and Netflix. And we've it's a it's a it's a mammoth uh, kind of department covering quite a lot of uh, kind of key entertainment brands. Um, But I've always had a a, a love for comedy, especially stand-up, and been really fortunate in the last couple of years to to capitalise on my friendship group and my network and people that I've worked with over the last ten years to then kind of help um, utilise that to to help them build online as well. So it's been it is it is a strange time when uh, you have a meeting with a comic uh, and they don't they don't know it's going to be you there. <laughs> Um, I, was, I got a call from Sindhu V, and she was like, I, "She was like, I saw your name, and I was like, this isn't, this isn't like my James, is it? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean?" She was like, "The, the comic James." I was like, "Yeah, yeah, it's the same one." So there's this kind of weird parallel, and I always kind of feel odd in that instance. Um, but yeah, it's been it's it, like ludicrously fortuitous, really. There's a, it's funny, isn't it? Because like in so one of the things that I think doesn't get said enough because people don't talk about it enough is the idea of making it in inverted commas. Like the idea of making it in this, in our kind of vernacular is being Michael McIntyre is being Graham Norton is being the big kind of star in lights. Wow. You've made it. Um, but the more people that I know, like comics wise, making it is, is, is actually just, not just, but paying your, uh, getting through your life, being passionate about your art, which is comedy. So like, it's interesting that like, I'm picking up from what you're saying that in, in many ways you've made it. Like you started out as a standup comedian. You really started working with standup com- as a standup comedian. You were at the same time working at Little Dot Studios for some of that. And it's like, from my understanding of your transition, little dot studios and and your work there it's like actually i'm enjoying this more and i'm i'm getting more out of this and so you actually kind of followed your passion and went into like when when you were first starting at little dot studios i remember us 
you know, making sketches together. We, you know, like performing in it. You were living the dream. You were getting funded sketches made and putting them out there and being able to use company resources to promote it in a good way because that's what the company wanted. So, like, the dream is to take your ideas, take your comedy ideas and get them out there, which is what you've done. But then... So, like, in many ways, not only are you making it, but you've made it, you continue to make it, you continue to pay a mortgage off with it, and you're, like, you know, you're fully making it. But I also point, I'm also keen to tie in with this as a question and go, like, I'm picking up a degree of, like, humility or kind of awkwardness about meeting Sindhu, for example, who many people say might you, oh, well, she's making it because she's on, you know, this TV show or that TV show. And then kind of being a bit cap in hand, like, yeah, it is me, a bit a bit kind of awkward about it. And I, I guess I, I'm interested to talk about that because I picked it up on what you just said there, but like, and and what what that means for you. It, it's funny you say that about that you've made it because that's not how I see myself um and also you know uh, we've spoken before in the past about this where i because when you're doing stand-up it's the dream and you're like you're it, you have to you have to forego so much in the pursuit of this dream you have to work incredibly hard you give up your evenings you give up your sanity <laughs> like you focus on this this idea and I did stand up for 10 years and I think for eight of those, I was convinced I could make it. I was like, I, I can see myself on TV. I can see myself writing for shows. I can see myself performing in front of stages. And, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to do like a sold out show at the, um, the IEC uh, in Edinburgh. So it's like 1500 people and it went amazingly well. And, you know, so that there's, I did, like those you, you emceed spank the biggest late night show in edinburgh for six years i've seen you MC, uh like you know you were the one of the first resident MCs at top secret and at angel comedy um you know you've toured the country uh, yeah absolutely you made it for years and could have gone a lot further absolutely yeah but funnily enough like i i started to i started to kind of have this seed of doubt that like i could the the dream was fading. I couldn't really see myself really punching through. Uh, and my job became more and more serious and there was more responsibility there. And I, and I always enjoy my day job. I've always enjoyed it. And that's, again, I'm, I'm aware of how insanely fortunate I am to have had the, the time and capacity to do stand up, but also maintain a job. I mean, I say that like I, I never went, there was about a five year period that I never went to any of my friends' birthdays. Uh, I became very distant with my friendship circle. Um, and it was very testing on my relationship. Um, and there were all these things that you kind of, you give up. Um, I, one of the things I always think about, I, <laughs> I was, I'm a massive, massive rugby fan and it's like another, another part of my, uh, life. And I had, I was offered tickets to be in this once in a lifetime slider seat at Twickenham that would have gone and followed the ball up and down the pitch because of something that came through my wife. And she was like, I can get you this thing. But I had a preview in Brighton at the Brighton Fringe and I gave it up to perform to three disinterested people <laughs> and die on my ass for an hour. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, no, this is worth it. This is all worth it. That, 
That is the microcosm right there. That is the most symbolic stand-up thing that I think I've ever heard. Like, you know, there is that sense with stand-up, absolutely, that you have to give up. And I'm keeping the thread of what you were saying like as well, but just answering that. Like, I feel like there is that thread of stand-up that you have to be pathologically just, this is what I do. Like, you know, it's not like you're cavalier about other relationships or having money or kind of like surviving in lots of other ways. But you have to be single-minded because it is very tough to do. Like Bill Burr, there's a great quote from Bill Burr where he goes, well, listen, I, you know, I carried on doing stand-up because, I mean, you know, it was not pleasant, but I was willing to be a 55-year-old living on a mattress in a friend's spare room in order to become a stand-up. And like, it, you do need to have that kind of level of pathological need <laughs> or pathological focus however you want to say it it's quite funny that bill burr quote comes up a lot and i see really? i see people like comics put it on their facebook wall and be like you know what i'd rather be a 30 something living on a mattress do it like chasing the dream than being miserable in a massive bed next to a wife i don't love and i always read that and I'm like there is a middle ground, you know, guys. It's not, it's not that binary. You don't have yeah. to marry someone you hate because you've stopped comedy. You can you can have a happy life. Yeah. Like, I just find that so funny because I'd convinced myself of that. And there is, there is elements of it. Yes, you have to sacrifice so, so much, but you don't have, like the alternative isn't misery. It isn't like golded, uh, gold-plated handcuffs, like not doing comedy. This this idea, like, and I really struggled with it. And, and I've mentioned, I've said it to you before, like when I, when I properly quit stand-up, um, and my last ever gig was Angel Comedy. Um, I made like I made a point. I want I want to go out on something that makes me feel warm and fuzzy. And I even did a new joke for the first time, and it landed. And I was like, ah, like I got that thrill of a new bit working. And it was my last gig, and I filmed it, and my phone overheated, and and it and I, I, it cancelled the recording, so I don't have it sadly. Um, but when I quit, I. I lost a huge sense of my identity. I'd been a stand-up for 10 years. It was who I was. It was why people wanted to talk to me at house parties. It was what got me up in the morning, got me excited, the highs, the lows, all of that. It was a lot of my friendship circle. It was who I was. And to stop, I felt like an absolute failure. It didn't matter. I had this other career that was still very entertaining, tied into comedy. I had friends and people I love and a career that I really cherish. I felt like a complete failure to the point where I had to... I had to go to therapy. It was too much uh, to take because I felt like I had, I'd given up on the dream and I, you know, I've lost the opportunity to be mid thirties in a mattress somewhere, you know? <laughs> um, and I, it, it was really tough because you do, when you start comedy and you, you buy into the dream and you, and you start chasing it, you, you invest so much into every sacrifice is worth it. Not going to Twickenham and performing to three disinterested people in a room upstairs, a pub in Brighton is worth it because everyone, every one of those sacrifices you make is for a greater goal. So you quantify everything you give up because you're working towards something. And that is true. And you are, and all of those experiences make you better. Like dying on your ass in front of those three people make it so much better when a joke bombs down the line and you don't just lose it. You're like, no, I've been here. I can recover it. I like I'm comfortable in the silence. Um, so those experiences are really worth it, but I just realized that I couldn't keep sacrificing 
everything and I wasn't willing to because I, I I saw the future ahead of me and I, I was at 50 50 at one point I was going to I was going to leave my job I was going to go pursue comedy full-time I was earning more than enough to pay my bills and I was like I can do this it's like I can support myself purely through comedy uh, which is a very like fortunate place to be in. not many people can do that through comedy alone and I, I was I was earning good enough money that I was like yeah I can do this and then the CEO of my company sat me down and talked me through what he thinks what he saw my future to be if I was there at the company and and he gave me this wonderful opportunity and, and I had a I had a breakdown I had a nervous I had a, a panic attack and I had a nervous breakdown uh, and I was in the street crying calling my brother because I didn't know I didn't know how to handle it because I, this, this wonderful opportunity was like, but you have to give up your dream. Like I can yeah. give you the safety net. I can give you this, like this life, but you have to give up this, this dream. Um, and the realization that I'm like, whilst I've done many kind of crazy things and, you know, people would say that doing stand up is a risk and, and, you know, that's, that's quite, I, in my very nature, I'm, I'm generally quite risk averse, I would say. And I saw this kind of safety and I was like, I, I think I'll go for that. But I also, it's not just that, I, I looked at what my life would be as a stand-up. And even if I made it, even if I got on, did live at the Apollo and got a few panel shows, what's the, what's the longevity of it? How many people make it and sustain at that level? You know, that it's most comics that, you know, they'll, they're the hot new thing and they last maybe five years and then you're like, Where, whatever happened to that person? So like, even those that make it, then are back down doing to the same kind of clubs and nights I was doing already. And like the likelihood of may, becoming a Jimmy Carr, a McIntyre, a, you know, one of the kind of big names is like one in a million. And I didn't, I didn't think I was naturally skilled enough to be that person. Um, and what it would have taken to sacrifice to become that person, I wasn't willing to do. I think that to really, to have put in the hours to become that level, I was good. Like I was a very good MC. I was an, I was a good, okay. Stand up. Like I was a good opener. I was always, I always opened the shows because I could take anything that come at me and I could turn any, <laughs> I was always kind of known as the guy that could turn any horrible room into a palatable <laughs> place so everyone put me on a, a open because I could bring a room into shape um and so I knew what my strengths were but to make myself a like a killer headliner I just would have to sacrifice more more time more writing and I don't think my relationship would have survived it I don't think my friendships would have survived it it would have damaged more like issues with my family and I just I wasn't willing to, to give all that up for what was a very very slim chance of of real success. Um, again, I had the luxury of this, this safety net, but I say the safety net, it was a career that I've been working on for like equal 10 years. You know, I'd, I'd worked my- It was a safety net that you'd worked, and you know, fucking hard at. I've, I saw it, you were working a full daytime job that took a lot out of you, and then you'd be on your Brompton bike and cycling to, like you'd turn up with this kind of look in your eyes and just like, I've just had a full day, but I'm ready. And you'd be there and then you'd head off and I'd be like, I hope James is going to be all right because he's like I know that he's been out like four times tonight, uh, you know, this week, and yeah, yeah. absolutely. I always like it does, I, I, it's interesting though because like there's an element in when you, uh, in the way that you're talking about it 
is is that you're almost a, not apologizing for not chasing after the dream or as you as you put it the dream but it's interesting because I, I i think there's more kind of power in the decision that you made in certain ways in the sense of there's a few things that come in firstly sunk cost is real like in terms of a human bias way of the way that we perceive the world like it's like waiting at a bus stop once you've started once you're five minutes waiting at that bus stop you're not leaving are you you're staying there because you've sunken five minutes into the bus stop and that's what a career is a lot of time and and knowing at knowing the fact of you know what i'm gonna kind of instead of waiting at this bus stop like a fucking lemon <laughs> i'm actually i'm gonna walk or i'm gonna kind of make it in a different way i'm gonna get where i need to to get it's like there's this idea that one like stand up is it's so visually compelling the end result of being Michael McIntyre or because people become these kind of icons, mythic icons that you kind of have a kind of nebulous emotional sense of what making it is. Mm. But the fact of the matter is that every single person has a different career. Like you, we, no one will ever be Eddie Izzard other than Eddie, Eddie Izzard. Nobody will ever be Stuart Lee other than Stuart Lee. And so you're actually working towards a fictionalized like version of success for yourself. And you don't know what those paths will be. And you don't know what the, the, the future is. You're like, we're all working towards, you know, our own kind of idea of what is success for us. And it feels like, so your decision feels a bit more empowered in the sense of like you being on, for me, you sitting on the curb in tears is, is, a sign of how much both things meant to you. Not how, like, it's not ripping your dream away. It's giving you two kind of parallel dreams that you're having to make a really difficult decision for, that the sacrifice either way is going to be large. And maybe there was an element of, I've experienced both for eight years, and the life that I prefer <laughs> is, isn't the stand-up life because the stand-up life is, is not only way more risk, you know, and everybody loves the story of the high-risk person, the guy that jumps off a cliff and lands on a bed of grass and just like, wow, that's amazing, <laughs> you know. But, like, it, it's also kind of, you know, there's something a lot more empowered that I think you gave it credit for telling the story of... I, I choose this trip mm. rather than I choose a, but I, I guess the reason I'm feeding that back is that something else that you spoke to me about before is your competitive edge. And like one of the things that is most difficult to give up if you've got a competitive edge is the idea of, of winning at standup or of winning at, and actually going, I'm better than that person and I should be that person. So that it stings, giving up also stings in that kind of way. Yeah, I, th there's definitely an element of that. I, um, it's funny, I, I look back, because w when I initially gave it up and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't communicate it to people in a, without apologising. Like, people are like, so when, when's your next gig? I'm like, no, I'm not gigging. And they're like, well, yeah, but when is the next one though? And I'm like, no, I'm, I've stopped. They're like, yeah, for now, but when you're back? And I'm like, no, I'm not, I'm not coming back. I'm not doing it again. And then like the worst was I'd have people go to me, you're really good and I'm like yeah no I know I was I was good and they're like no but you but you you're really funny and I'm like yeah but I've, I've stopped they're like well why would you stop if you're funny and I'm like 
I have a th- I literally have a therapist right now to talk about this. I don't want to do it down the pub. <laughs> and the the um, way that I came up with explaining it to people is that because it, it's true was I only had um, like I I didn't have enough energy to do both keep doing both careers. Like I was, I felt myself plateauing and spread too thin. Um, and I was better at my day job than I was at comedy. And that was the way that I kind of explained it to people. And then those that knew, had seen me at comedy would get the impression, well, he must be very good at his day job then. Um, <laughs> or, you know, that sounds arrogant, but it was like, that was the, that was the way of justifying it. So people could quantify two things better at this chose this. Um, but yeah, I, and like I was getting like I I was I felt myself developing in my day job, but as a result, I had no mental capacity to develop as an act. Like my, I realised that like I felt like my shows were getting diminishing returns. Like I and um, I like my agent at the time. <laughs> Yeah, could definitely tell there was diminishing returns. Um, and then when I... What's that laugh? <laughs> there was <something. laughs> that was uh, That was trying to hide the fact that you're having an existential breakdown about your career whilst they're going, so what's the plan for Edinburgh? And you're like... <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't begrudge uh, what happened with my agent. Ultimately... I, I think people misconstrue what an agent is. Like they're there to facilitate your success. They're not there to make your success. Like you have to make it for yourself. And you don't get an agent and all of a sudden you're on TV. No, you still have to be working really hard. And I got like, I got the uh, agent, I got nominated best show. I was like, I, I was flying in like 2016. I thought it was like my best year and then just work started ramping up and I wasn't developing and my 2017 show was wasn't as good as my 2016 show and then 2018 I felt burnt out so I did a repeat my 2017 show and again it was even worse and it was just like and you could tell like the agent kind of pulling away and I was resenting them but reality was I was resenting myself for not accepting what was happening um and then when I look back on it I'm like yeah if I was the agent I'd be like this guy is just not working like he's not putting the effort in so why should i um which is a completely legitimate thing and also it is a business so they need people that are working hard for them so so yeah i um but that doesn't mean that i wasn't completely hammered at a christmas uh the the agency christmas party being like they don't give a fuck about me (laughs) (laughs) really genuinely is that you yeah 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 i was the guy at the door being like i book myself corporates they don't book me corporates and they're like yeah james because well look at you like have you you seen the mirror um so (laughs) so yeah i do i do kind of laugh at that because you know um you got to take some responsibility for it as well um yeah, it's interesting. That I like. The, I don't know why, but I like the idea of you this ch- kind of Charles Bukowski character at at the work Christmas do, just kind of belligerently being in the corner, thinking that it's like because in that kind of situation, you don't know, how, you don't you don't think it through and go, this isn't going to help anyone, <laughs> like me or them. It's not that they're going to see you in the corner and go, hey, that reminds me actually, no wonder he's pissed off. We haven't given him some work recently. We should give him some work. <laughs> That's not the way that any human brain works. I know. But I, think it, I, I just, like, because again, it was on a, it was on like a Thursday or something like that. So I'd done eight hours. I then cycled to fucking Richmond to do a gig. And then I'd cycled back. So I'd, I'd like, I reached a party 
and it was like 11 and everyone was, and I was just like well I'm gonna play catch up I got absolutely hammered because I was I hadn't eaten I'd cycled maybe 30 miles done a gig <laughs> and an eight hour day. I was just but I was just an absolute wreck but it's like yeah like, I think that's indicative of, of where my head was at at that point like I was I wasn't looking after myself I, I was just just flat out at everything and it wasn't it wasn't a way to live <laughs> so so yeah I um yeah, I, I do. I do remember uh, <laughs> Garrett Millerick being like, "Maybe you should just like tone it down a little bit." Mate. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Good old Garrett, yeah. an arm around the shoulder, like, "Why don't we come outside just for a minute? We're yeah, just kind of like, let's just bring it down a couple of notches." And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> there's, you know, but there's something about that that also, you know, they. <clears throat> There's a couple of times in this chat where you've kind of, you know, sat on yourself or you're kind of humble about how good you are at it. And the work ethic that you you put into it, you know, like is I always think that, you know, is that old phrase. I know it's a cliche, but the harder I get, the lucky, the harder I work, the luckier I get, mm. you know, and everyone that I know that makes it with one or two exceptions, like, um, you know, that happen to have an agent as a mum or a dad and they do work a bit hard, but they don't necessarily work that hard. Mm. Um, you know, but a load of people that succeed work really hard. Now, some of those people work really hard because they pathologically need that kind of level of attention or and they don't quite know why but they're just that's what they do they don't have any family they don't have any friends or you know even their friends are just like yeah well I'm their friend but you know so-and-so's world is very so-and-so shaped let's put it that way um and I'm saying that deliberately not naming names because like you know nobody's a 2d representation but like your work ethic at doing those, uh, uh, you know, doing a full day job and cycling off and like that, that wears you down over time. And I find that in any comedian's career, I think is another interesting um, aspect of it. It's very difficult not to get bitter because it's not a meritocracy. Like, uh, you know, it's not just because you're doing your, just because you're smashing it every single night of the week on the road, you or you know, or at Edinburgh, it doesn't mean that the right reviewer comes and sees it. it doesn't mean that the show goes particularly well, and that the, the you know the reviews kind of <clears throat> come in, or that the judges come on. If you smash it twenty nine out of thirty days, and the and the judge comes on the thirtieth day, which is just a middling show, you know that they get an unrepresentative of you know because everything's based success is based not just on word of mouth, but also, you know, who you've got in your corner professionally and mm. how you do in competitions and stuff. Um, you know, that perception is real. So it's not a meritocracy, however hard you work. Yeah. And I, it's funny. And, sorry, I was just going to say that I, I had a, when I did, I used to do shows in what was the Jekyll and Hyde. It's now the Hanover Tap. Um, in and, Edinburgh. This is in, in Edinburgh, your, your yeah. Edinburgh event. And... I could fill that room like I, I would fly for three hours a day, and I would get that room full, and I and I made very good money in Edinburgh. Like everyone would tell me about how Edinburgh is this money pit, and I was I, I bought my wife's engagement ring off of my 2015 run. Like I made or 26 2016 run, so I I, I I was really good at that. Never got reviewed. 
I never like I may as and I would I'd walk away <laughs> with like the 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 audience reviews were all gleaming and everyone would say that they loved the show and I'd have repeat custom people come back at you know multiple years make friends out of it like audience members that became friends and stuff like that and but I never got a review and, and I, I always used to like say that thing of like if a tree falls in the wood can anyone hear it if a comedian performs in Edinburgh and no one reviews it were they even there like I was like yeah. what, what did I like what have I what was the purpose my career didn't go anywhere and I used to get is the competitive thing of like you you get lost in in the the industry element of it of like it's all about reviews it's all about you know what the buzz is and stuff like that. I had an amazing time for a month in that city and I bought a diamond ring off of it and got and proposed to my wife my now wife and got you know that is something that will be with me for the rest of my life better than a review from Chortle. That will be more valuable to me. And every time I look at the ring, I think that that that's what I think. I think like, oh my God, that was a really fun month that got me the ability to buy something I never would have had the money to buy before. It's just like, I don't know. I, I, I was so competitive because it's my nature. Like I'm, I'm, I'm big in sport and, and like competitive by that. When I do look back, I often think if I'd not seen everyone as a competitor or not seen every gig as a who can come first, maybe my network would have been better. Maybe I would have enjoyed certain elements of it more. But I don't know. I, I, I do think people get lost in the competitive nature of it too much and forget why we're there to make people laugh. You know, and, that's, and that is such a joy when you get that real meaty laugh and like, you know, God, what a feeling. You know that. I, I I also I also want to be an advocate for for the James that that everyone else sees is that you might internally see yourself as very competitive, and I think this is true of a lot of comedians. But other people wouldn't necessarily. Yes, uh, other people wouldn't necessarily see you as competitive. So there are loads of people that out there where you would go, "Wow, that guy's competitive." I remember being asked once uh, of like um, somebody asked me, "How'd the gig go?" And and it was when I was relatively new, and I, I said, "Oh yeah, it's good." It was good. And they went, "Who won the night?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> what? And I was like, "Well, it wasn't a competition. That it wasn't a co- you know like an actual competition." He goes, "No, no, no." But who won? I mean, and I was like, "What?" He goes, oh, "Who's best?" I was like, "How are you seeing the world?" Like he didn't even think to see it in a different way. <laughs> but, like, but the the thing is, like you don't. You certainly didn't come across like that. And, I, I, you know, a lot of people listening to this wouldn't know, but you were one of the friendliest, supportive, both on stage and off stage. So, like, internally, that feeling of competitiveness is was an internal regard rather than it was, you know, the same part of you that, for, for me, the same part of you that almost tells, that says, hands up, I was really competitive and it made my life a misery. That self kind of carousicating kind of, regard that can be a bit negative about yourself is the same thing that you're talking about it's like you were down on yourself a bit more like i like in the sense of i wasn't good enough or i'm pushing or do you know what i mean i I don't want to get too kind of like psychologically kind of it's funny it's because like like any like most comedians the reason i I became funny or had to be funny. But I hit puberty so incredibly late. I was a very, very small 15-year-old boy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I like being like, th- there's pictures of me from age 15 to 16. I, th- there looks like 
well, the better comparison, there's a picture of my dad age 15 and there's a picture of me age 15 and I look like I could be his son at that point in time. Like, <laughs> it's, it like, so I had to be funny to kind of, do, because I was bullied and like, not like horrifically bullied, but I was bullied like anyone is at school and no girls would talk to me. So I was like, we'll have to be funny. That's, that's my option. And then I went to uni and I was like, I don't know, I was very outgoing and I liked being funny and I became quite arrogant. And, I, and it's, it's, you see that thing of like the microcosm of comedians who become successful and then they're horrific people. And it's mainly because they got no attention before and now they get lots of attention and they turn into horrific people. I did that from like age 16 to 21. <laughs> and then I went into comedy and I, I was quite, I, I'm not arrogant, but I, I was full of myself. I thought, this is it. This is going to be easy. It's going to be fun. Comedy was the most humbling experience of my life. It really put me back in my place. It was like, and my friends from school and my friends from uni see me as this like hyper confident, like super, you know, um, like, and hopefully not arrogant because I was, why would they be friends with me? But, you know, the hyper confident guy but they've not seen the amount of deaths I've had over a 10 year period that really brought me back down to ground. And yeah, like the highs are great and you're flying, but I still remember the like uh, Kings Lynn, <laughs> Kings Lynn 2014, my 20 minutes of, I, you know what Barry, I blame you because I did three nights at Angel in a row and they were so nice that I thought I am so on fire right now that nothing can touch me. And I went up to King's Lynn and I ate shit for 20 minutes. <laughs> At the 15 minute mark, I thought, I'm gonna pull up, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna bail early. And I got a huh. And I thought, oh, they're turning. <laughs> I'm gonna stick it out for the rest of this 20. And I just died. And I remember getting in the car with Gordon Southern on the way back. <laughs> and I, I just said to him, I was like, look. I know what I did on that stage. I'm going to talk like I didn't die on my ass for the rest of this journey because I don't want to just cry the uh, like three hour drive home. But don't think my upbeat persona doesn't accept what I just did out there. <laughs> so like those humbling moments really they changed how I view myself. But also I think that's why I'm constantly like apologetic and self-deprecating because I'm like I don't I don't want to be I I I, <laughs> I don't know. It humbled me a bit. And I don't, I get this thing of like, I used to have this, well, not used to, I'm still getting it at the moment, where I had a reviewer once say to me afterwards, like, oh, I thought you were going to be a dick, but you weren't. And it's just my face. That was their assumption from just my face and me walking on stage and being like, hey, <laughs> and like, there's this assumption that I'm going to be an arsehole. So I always have to kind of try and moderate yeah emphasize that like so a lot of my jokes are self-deprecating and bringing me down and I was the butt of a lot of my like stories because if I if there was any joke where I was like hyper you know masculine and confident people are like oh is this he's the guy that bullied me at school and I'm like no I was the kid that got bullied but you know yeah I just hit, well, hit puberty and went to the gym you know I think that anybody that um is kind of overly arrogant is like um, often <laughs> has at some point been the opposite of that because they're pushing too hard. And I reckon, I think everybody recognizes it inside themselves. I, I had one, I have a question to go on from that, but I wanted to just quickly go back to the Edinburgh where you earn enough money for, to buy an engagement ring. And at the end of that Edinburgh, this is kind of speaking to the competitive or the kind of in the comedy industry, James. At the end of that Edinburgh, right? 
you've had this great experience where there's been a huge amount of audience love. There's been some great shows. You've made money out of it. It's been like, this is great. Uh, at the end of that, Edinburgh, would you have given the positive experiences and the, the money that you made for a five-star chortle review? At, or At the time, yeah, I would have. Now, no. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of Edinburgh, I am like just... I like bloodshot eyes, refreshing three weeks, chortle, <laughs> the list, Broadway babe. I'm like, why won't any of you accept I exist? Like, I just, <laughs> so yeah. at the time, yeah, it was, it drove me insane. But now, no, like, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't have changed it. But then I only paid for PR one year and that was a disaster. Um, and I, <laughs> uh, what was, why was it such a disaster? I'm curious. Because, again, I got no reviews. And um, I got no reviews. I filmed I filmed a video of a packed room chanting, review James Loveridge. <laughs> At the end of the show, I just said, guys, I can't get a reviewer in here for love nor money. I know this sounds arrogant, but please, I'm just going to send it to the reviewers. And then I remember giving it to my uh, PR person first <laughs> and saying, can you send this out to the reviewers? They're like, yeah, 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 sure. And I was like, if you sent it out, and I went, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, you know, there's a view count on YouTube, right? I, I can see how many people have watched this. <laughs> like, you haven't even watched this. <laughs> like, um, and then, yeah, so just, but then maybe that's an insane thing to do. Why would a reviewer want to see an audience chant review James? Like maybe, that, but you lose your mind in Edinburgh. So you think anything will work. Well, it's, you know, I think it's like anything else. It's what you come to it with. I think one of the, you know, if you're a reviewer that's interested in a fun story, then to start off the review with, I saw a video and it was like review James Loveridge. And it was like, obviously, you know, he'd been like, he'd been having great shows. So I decided to go down and see. And so I have reviewed James Loveridge. And while at the end of it, I was, you know, and then you've got a narrative and then it's a fun little story, you know, where, or if you're a, if, if you're a reviewer that's just kind of like over being asked to review and is really bloodshot-eyed, kind of bored with the whole thing, just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, you, it's like anything in Edinburgh or anything hard. It's like, it's the spirit that you bring to it, I think, that kind of, you know, and and it's, it's interesting that, I mean, most of comedy is, like, is what you bring to it. If you think, if you come to a gig and you think it's going to be a fun gig, generally you'll find it fun. Mm. If you if you come to a gig and you think it's not going to be a fun gig as an audience or a performer, you'll be like, oh yeah, it was all right. And the problem is that a lot of reviewers come to it with like, oh, this, I've got to see, watch this comedian. Oh, he looks like the guy that bullied me at school. Oh, fuck him. Like, whatever. But um, like that arrogance the, that you talk about, do you think it had anything to do with the heckle, kind of the glass that you had thrown to you? There's this great video online of you, like, mate, I hadn't seen this video of you being having a glass thrown at you, but it is brutal. Yeah. Like, guy, like, he doesn't, like, he's a cunt, absolute, yeah. full on, like, like I, I, I saw it as like, I haven't seen this video, and it's you at Top Secret, right? Uh, in, I don't know, 2014, 2015. And like you introduce it, you put yourself, and I think it was a good idea to be introduced to it because it's such a brutal video. Mm. But the the, vid the footage shows this guy like with speed, like you're not even that nasty to him, you whatever, but with speed and a casualness that is terrifying, pick up a glass and throw it 
at you with speed, like a, a metal, a, not metal glass, sorry, a, a, you know, a, a heavy, proper <laughs> glass glass. It's like, fuck. Yeah, the, the really irritating thing about that is I've got the CCTV footage, but there was no audio because I um, the audio that kicks in is because Olaf Falafel was headlining um, and when it was turning really sour, he got his phone out and started filming. So that's where the audio comes from. But, right. But what had happened, it'd been a really lovely night. And I was emceeing and I just wanted to do a quick joke about Camden, that I was where I was living at the time. And I had a really short kind of 30 second joke about Essex that I thought I could segue into. Um, and it turns out he was from Essex as well. And he just kicked off and he like, he just, it was that kind of thing of where there's a group of guys and I get it. I used to get it quite a lot where if there's a group of lads, the real gobby one didn't like not being the center of attention for the whole time. And if I was, you know, making his mates laugh, he'd kick off. Like, and it happened, you know, and like spank it happened a lot and there'd always be someone gobby, but you know, they're drunk and they're not very smart most of the time. So it's, it's easy to deal with them. But this guy was just like, Oh, you shit. And I'm like, Oh God, mate, I'm not like, I've been crushing it tonight. So like, you've really picked your t- at the start of the night, you could have shouted that and I wouldn't have everyone on side, but you all on my side, they'll cheer. I'm like, yeah, yeah mate. And then it uh, started saying, yeah, well, I only paid a fiver. And I was like, yeah, there's over 200 people in here. Like I'm making bank. Little does he know that the MC does not take a share of the amount of people that pay, but he doesn't need to know that. Um, so I was like, yeah, and then, um, and I think the thing that really broke him was because uh, I kept on winding him up and the back and forth, I was like, I can't remember it because it was years ago. But the thing that really got him is I said, does it hurt knowing you peaked at 16? Um, that you were really cool at school, but now the kid you bullied is making you look like a mug. Does that hurt? Um and he stormed off and he grabbed like a, a tumbler that was a tip jar on the back of the bar and he threw it over 200 people's head. <laughs> he really, he had an arm on him. But the, the stupid thing was, because like he, oh, that was it. Before he did that, he threw his drink over me um, and never missing up an opportunity. I, I took my shirt off and started and then grabbed someone's ice bucket where they had a bottle of wine took the wine bottle out and poured the water over me and like did a dance and kind of um yeah like, you, you swung with it yeah, yeah. so you, you like you can't touch me type thing like this is my stage I, the reality was when he stepped up to me and he, he was in my face i was terrified i was at my knees were jelly but i thought yeah. if i back away or just show that i'm scared he's won so yeah and then he threw the glass and it smashed on the wall behind me and because i was topless the glass bounced back and cut all my back so um yeah, but in the at the moment, and then I just burst out laughing and carried on joking. Like the adrenaline was there, and I just made a joke about how, uh, and then went to his friends and be like, "Like, is that your friend? You choose to hang out with him." Like, I've never heard anyone that's uh, like been so upset with comedy or something. I can't remember, but yeah. And then down the pint, everyone cheered, and we carried on with the night. But when I came off the stage, the adrenaline left me, and I was all of a sudden I realised I've been assaulted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> terrified but the the funny thing is um uh tom lucy said to me once he was just like yeah to be fair james if anyone's going to be glassed you know it should be you and i was like (laughs) it should (laughs) what what does that mean you went well you can handle it can't you and i was like that's not the reputation i want like why is that my reputation but apparently i'm the guy that can handle 
crazy rooms. To be fair, Tom Lucy should never have a glass thrown at him because, <laughs> like, he just deflates. Like, you literally... <laughs> but, I mean, looking at the video, and I'd encourage anyone listening to watch it because it's really interesting to watch, is you wouldn't have an idea of, like... You know, it's almost a microcosm of the stand-up's career or, you know, like your career or any stand-up's career is like you. the show must go on. And you have no idea how kind of like you're acting like it's part of the act. Mm. Absolutely, fundamentally, bulletproofly confident of just like you wouldn't know that it's actually an audience member that points out that your back is bleeding yeah because you're too busy dancing and going yeah well looks like your aim isn't as good as like you're literally kind of going being like and obviously funny lines but at the same time goading the guy that just threw not just a pint glass but one of those fucking edgy tumblers yeah that are really heavy thick. it was a um, thick glass yeah precisely like but um but yeah, it's, it was it was it's really interesting to watch, and it is very you in terms of you know the way that you swing with the kind of um, swing with the incident, and you know roll with the punches, literally rolling with the punches. But um, but yeah, it's and it does feel like there's something kind of symbolic about a stand-up's career in the sense of like I mean, one of the things that probably prepped you for that is doing spank. Because like some of the stories, like I, I remember I filled in for you a couple of times at Spank. I think, you, you know, like doing the whole run is a bit too much. And I think I did a few. But um, the night that I did it was like, or what the night that I remember, particularly when I did it, was watching, because everybody's just absolutely fucked. <laughs> you know, it's two in the morning. Like often it's load of kind of like at two in the morning, who are you going to get? It's mostly 18 to 21 year olds because there's a student discount anyway or whatever. But it was, it's a rammed room at the underbelly. And on this particular night, Paul Foote was headlining. And I, it was one of the most iconic performances I think I've ever seen right because you had the gig and it was kind of slowly going off in peace you know everybody's kind of like you know gets slowly more drunk and less able to focus and I saw Paul Foot do a 40 minute set about Angela Lansbury to a load of <laughs> a load of 18 to 20 year olds who had no idea who Angela Lansbury was right and the, it was amazing because Paul's dedication to the bit there are about 10 people that are absolutely loving it and everybody else had this kind of i don't know that they, they weren't really heckling because they couldn't really understand how to heckle they weren't they knew it wasn't shit so they weren't saying this is shit but there was mostly just murmurs of like who is angela lansbury <laughs> <laughs> i guarantee when you said that to me i guarantee you all, like, all that's happening at the side of stage is corey and james the producers being like it's a 20 minute booking. I don't he's doing 40. Yeah. <laughs> we, want, we want to go home. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it was funny cause I did it for, for six years and, and you know, I, you, you live with other comedians um, in Edinburgh and I'd get home and like the next morning they'd be like, how was your show yesterday? How was your show yesterday? How was Spank? Whenever I described it, it always sounded like I was describing a fever dream. 
Oh yeah, well then, you know, uh, this this there was a Scottish stag doing. He was dressed as Mario, and he just got up on stage and got naked, and then did crowd surf, and then everyone started chanting about uh, pancreatic cancer. So we ended up raising four hundred pound for that. And you know what? What are you talking about? It's just like <laughs> things, and then yeah, then like uh, yeah, like. Joel Domit did a crowd surf, and then this happened. It's just like it's all these like insane, th- like, but it's it's never like oh yeah, it was it was fine. There's always some mad thing, um, yeah, and like it was it was it was so enjoyable. And like what I liked about it is it evolved. Cause it, it's been like it was going for sixteen years, you know, like ten years before me, and then um, like took over as as one of the co-hosts and uh, transforming it into like updating it with the times really because you know i think the first 10 years was very much a product of its time you know um kind of tgi friday vibes really um how would you yeah. describe it just for people that wouldn't know what it is so, so yeah so it's a it's a midnight till three in the morning um variety show um we always start with a sketch act uh we kind of it's not just straight stand up we have a variety of stand up and sketch and character and musical and magic and and we encourage it to be a little bit wonky we want it to be just like yes we've got some like really relentlessly good stand ups but um, we want to be quite a diverse lineup in every sense. You know, we very we made sure it was never an all males lineup, and um, you know, wanted to kind of be as kind of diverse as possible. Um, but it was just the whole vibe was about having fun. It had like a few key rules, which are an absolute godsend, which are inherited from the James and Leon, the previous hosts. And one of them was any time anybody said spank on stage, one of the acts or the compare said spank, the lights would flash up and everyone would scream, you love it. And it was this amazing reset button that if anything mad had happened, <laughs> you could just go, spank, you love it. And everyone's like back in the room. And it was this like, I mean, it was a power that you could abuse too much. If you used it too much, then it lost its potency. But it was this incredible thing. And someone always got naked every night. There was a naked promo where someone could promote anything from uh, what they were doing, from a, a show to a charity to a shop. We had one guy get naked and promote Croydon. It didn't really matter whatever they... <laughs> That's just the guy that gets naked, though. I mean, he's not there for Croydon, is he? <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Um, and yeah, and it was, it was just this really like enjoyable. Like I, I love watching live comedy, uh, and that's one of the other joys of performing was just seeing so much amazing comedy. And that I got like because I, I was <laughs> in Edinburgh. Like I would typically do, still be working my day job, then fly for three hours a day, then do my hour show then have a steak bake and then do Spank for three hours. Uh, Spank was my opportunity to see acts. I never got to see shows in Edinburgh. Uh, so I'd get to see like seven acts every night. Um, and you're right, I, I couldn't always do the full run because my body would give up on me. I used to, I always used to live with uh, Kwame Asante. He's also a qualified doctor. Um, and one year my voice blew out and I couldn't speak. Another year I got shin splints and I couldn't walk. And he used to remember him sitting me down once being like... Maybe a fringe isn't for you. <laughs> Your body rejects it every year. Like you, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's just it was such a fun, fun, fun thing to do. Um, and we had like a real kind of cult atmosphere. But what was important is it was like whatever happened on stage, like we backed. 
So if an act died on the rush, it wasn't about throwing anyone under the bus, you know. And I remember we had, um, oh, what is his name? He, he, he supports Bill Burr on tour a lot. Joe, oh, he's in Breaking Bad. I can't remember. Anyway, um, Joe something. Um, just, just had an awful gig. Just had an awful, awful gig. And people tried to boo and he just like, like all kicked off. But then uh, I remember just going out and like absolutely chastising the audience, being like, this is our stage. These are our acts. We back them 100%. And if you're not enjoying it, that's perfectly fine. But you do not shout our acts. Anyway, so if you'd like to see Joe's show, it is on at five. <laughs> Um, yeah, it just like, I don't know. We just had a lot of fun and there was always something crazy. Um, and yeah, it became a really like uh, just enjoyable location for like people to come at, at late at night in Edinburgh. Did you, I mean, so for, for me seeing the show, performing in it to a degree um, or, or a bit, um, not as regularly by far, but I mean, the skill needed to hold that room is, you know, is measurable. Like you, you know, there are very few MCs that can hold the room, or kind of, you know, make it work night after night. So, and I'm curious as to what um, what skills you felt you learned. Like Spank for me is very similar to what people. It's the, probably the most similar to late and live that the old late and live in the Gilded Balloon in terms of shows because you it, it had that kind of you don't know what's going to happen there's a drunkness to the chaos and yeah nothing will ever be like the late and live in the 1980s because people human life was cheaper back then <laughs> and people literally would kind of you know throw glasses regularly or empty i remember arthur smith telling his story i yeah well i was doing it and a guy came up and i, I pissed him off but I, he came up and i thought he poured a glass of a, a, a pint of a lager over me but it was warm barry <laughs> and um and I was really annoyed. The thing I was most annoyed about is I was wearing a new suit. I was like, this new suit's never going to be the same again. Hey, that just wouldn't happen anymore. That, like, that just pure, like, you'd have to be fucking unlucky for that to happen. But Arthur was telling it like, yeah, it was just one of those nights. Yeah, one of those nights. Of but Frank is, like, you know, in a kind of, you know, 2000s, 2010s version of that, I guess. You're not going to get many nights that are as chaotic or no or open to chaos or have as much kind of energy to corral as an MC or mm. somebody that's hosting the room like what would you say you the the, the key things you learned from that um what I learned over the years and what I really enjoyed about it was when I first started I would like I had I mentioned earlier about like a 30 second Essex joke. So if I, where are you from? And I would do this 30 second joke before, you know, to make guarantee I got a laugh before I went into audience interaction and, and I'd talk to couples, but and it was just a lead in so I could tell a couple's joke and stuff like that. And it, it was a bit formulaic. And if, and we had people come back spank, like we, genuinely there was a guy, Richard, that he, I think of the, 25 shows he would be at 20 of them like it, so you had people come back all the time and it's not enjoyable for them if you're and not enjoyable for you if you end up just having the same feeder line same jokes and you know you, you've got your hour-long show to do your same old same old like and you've your, your regimented hour so as i my confidence grew i removed 
pre-written jokes and I would I would remove the safety net and it was so much more fun it took me a while to get really sharp at it but once that safety net was gone like I would ask a question what do you do and they'd start telling me about their job and hopefully you know if I had something to instantly bounce off great but then if I didn't the instinct to pull away and ask a different question or go somewhere else, you have to wrestle that and fight it and, and say, no, let's go deeper. Let's go deeper, deeper, deeper. And you end up finding real gems if you stick with it and you don't let the nerves take over. So that was what I I learned from that was kind of, let's, like, n- no plan. Like, there's a, there's a rough kind of, like, we there's, there was a there was a rehearsed intro of this is what the night is boom 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 like music dance let's bring on an act bang so it always started with a bang but then the first bit of audience interaction um you know i had a mix of co-hosts but what we typically do is go right let's talk to that couple or i want to know more about this man here uh, and that was as much planning as we did um and what was fun about that is every night was fresh every conversation was fresh and the audience fed off it as well and sometimes you know it wouldn't work but like more often than not it did um and i couldn't tell you any like the one things i always do remember is when it didn't work rather than the jokes that did um but yeah it just meant that i lived very much in the moment of that show and there was no i don't know i never felt any pressure by the time i went out like towards the end of it I just rocked up, did it. There was nothing rehearsed. You'd go in and you'd just play what was in front of you. And it it was just so much more fun that way. Um, and you could just adapt. And, and the other thing I've realized is knowing when this this moment's peaked, like let's let's not let's not try and keep knocking it out of the park. You've, right, you've got a big laugh, let's bring on an act. Let's do them a favor. Like, and also knowing the show isn't about me, it's about all the acts and it's about the audience. So you're like, chat, chat, chat. If you get a slam dunk then don't try and shoot another three-pointer just fucking bring the act on and ride that wave and let them ride that wave you know so um yeah the removal of the ego and the removal of the safety net were the two things that i learned from hosting that show i suppose you saw but from removing your ego that the night benefited from it overall like do you um Uh, is there any particular incidents that are the craziest from it? I'm just curious about stories because it does strike me as a, as a, I mean, like you said, a fever dream. Yeah, like, there, but there were like there were quite a few. There was one that always sticks in my mind um, of a girl who lost her middle finger to bone marrow cancer, and in the naked promo, um, got naked, but then give up her went to give up her middle finger to cancer, but couldn't and she's like but I want you all to give your middle fingers up to cancer because I can't and everyone's like the middle fingers up we raised you know 600 pound for bone marrow cancer that day and it was wow that was really fun uh there's been um yeah there was one where like a fight kicked off between these just like there was a really arrogant posh group of students and they just started on these Scottish guys it was just a bad idea um and it all kicked off and someone threw a chair and said like security and this guy came in and wrapped them all up and bundled them out and as he was carrying them out I was like that guy doesn't work here uh, <laughs> <laughs> turns out he was an off-duty policeman and he kicked them all out and he came back in and was like just like dusting himself off and like the whole room was silent and I sat and he sat down and I went you alright mate and he went yeah I went 
you here with? He was like, I'm on a date. And I was like, mate, I was like, you're the, this is the sexiest date I've ever witnessed. And we like gave him a free beer and, you know. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, the- it's a real case of hold my glass. <laughs> yeah. He like just carried out like three guys out of the room, handed them to security and then came back in and like dusted himself and sat back down. Um, you know, God, we did a thing of like, let's see how many naked people we could get on stage. And it was like 37. Seven naked people. <laughs> um, we. I remember my dad being dragged up on stage and having to do a dance off with Patrick Monaghan. That was a, just a personal highlight for mine. Um, but yeah, just um, we had like a few celebrities kind of come and watch a show and stuff like that. It did, yeah, it just it just a. I don't know. It all meshes into one really. Um, but yeah, I, I've I've cried with happiness at that night. I genuinely have multiple times been overwhelmed with emotion that something is so wonderful or funny or beautiful, like some really meaningful causes where we've raised money, some just really heartfelt stuff there, but also some unbelievable comedy. So yeah, who stands out as being able to kind of like really light up that room, or not necessarily regularly, but just who lit up that room like. I've, it, it, memorably for you um, I've always loved having John Hastings on Desiree Birch uh, one really funny one was uh, Ian Sterling where there was uh, this McDonald's initiative where they were like trying to get people into comedy and they had like a YouTuber that was like I'm going to ha- I'm going to get you lessons from a professional comedian and it- and so there was we had loads of cameras all set up and this guy was doing his first ever five minutes of stand up at Spank his first ever gig <laughs> and you know, like in the old days, I think we would have like made it difficult for him. But I was like, now let's let's try and make this nice. And so I said to the people, like, I said to the audience, I was like, look, this guy is doing his first ever gig in front of you know two hundred drunk uh, reprobates. Let's show him how wonderful we can be as an audience. Let's give him all the love and support because it's fucking terrifying for people who've been doing it seven years, let alone someone that's doing it seven minutes. Let's be great. And he was awful, but the audience really got on board with it and it was nice. And, and there was the marketing director of McDonald's and all of that. Ian Sterling headlined. He didn't know any of this had happened. He turned up annihilatedly drunk and did a whole bit about how McDonald's gives him the shits. <laughs> and it's the worst food in the world. And I'm getting like death eyes from the from the marketing director, from like the YouTuber that's there, all like the like corporate people that are there with McDonald's. And I'm like, like I have whispered in his ear and be like, take down the golden arches and throwing him on stage. Like it's not, nothing to do with me. Fuck off. But yeah, that was really funny. <laughs> <laughs> Take down the golden arches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does sound like very good. <laughs> yeah, that was, um, that was good. What I was going to say, um, I just wanted to also talk about like the amuse moose laugh off thing. What? Why do you you diminish that? You said, oh, it wasn't really a, a thing. What, what? How come? Because <sighs> comedians are elitist, and you go, oh, I was nominated best show. They're like, what? The actual award, and you're like. No, not the actual award. And they're like, well, it's not an award then, is it? And it's like, it, it, it is. But hang on, hang on, hang on. Did anyone say that or did your head <laughs> say that? <laughs> I imagine they did. Um, no one ever said it to me, but you play that in your head, don't you? So I yeah. always preface because the last, I just, I had visions of me going, I got nominated for an award and people being like, you know, I didn't tell him bullshit that like he's been nominated for the main award. 
Um, <laughs> but that was that was genuinely I was I was so happy with that because I I again I got nominated for that award and I didn't get reviewed that year, uh, even after the nomination. Um, yeah, even after the nomination uh, and the final and everything like that. Um, I didn't get, I didn't get, reviewed. <laughs> uh, but that was the year that I'd sold, like, effectively sold out the whole run and, uh, bought a diamond ring with it. So it like, it's, it was a wonderful experience and I loved it. Um, yeah, I've, I've got a silver medal from that, which I, I'm ashamed. I can't hang up a silver medal, but I also can't throw it away because it's the only thing I ever won in comedy. So, <laughs> so it is buried in a sock drawer that my wife's like, "Is are you throwing this away?" And I was like, "I can't." She's like, well, "Do you want it out?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> I'm, I'm ashamed of it, but I like it too much to throw it away. There's a, there is that you know I I, I it's interesting because the amusement is is one of the biggest awards in in theatre festival, but it's not the biggest award. Which uh, like it's interesting anchoring. I don't know if you know the psychological kind of. I don't know, the bias of anchoring. So, like, it's been shown, and this is a mental fact, but it is true, is that if you give a human being two options, and option one is to have a wage of £30,000 a year, right? But everyone else in the company earns £50,000 a year. Or you earn £25,000 a year, but everyone else in the company earns £20,000 a year, which would you go for? And most people go for the £25,000 a year, like demonstrably not accepting the better situation because it makes them top dog. Like, and that's just a human, and it, and it is a, you know, I mean, it's most visible in stand-up in situations like this where you can be given a silver medal and you'd be like, yeah, but it's not the gold, is it? <laughs> and, but you can be like, you know, um, and and it is it's really hard not to. And I think part of the thing that pushes people on and makes people work really hard is the you know the, the desire to get you know to 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 get that gold medal to be at the top to you know and to not kind of but it, it can also be quite toxic not to settle. Not you know, the idea of settling is very it's a horrible word, isn't it? Are you going to mm. settle? You know, and it's like, well, you know, at the end of the day, we're all going to settle because we've all got to die. We're all, all our lives are compromised. None of us are gods. Yeah, you're going to have to settle. Yes, I'm really sorry. But at some point, you're going to have to settle. It's like he fought the good fight. Yeah, but he obviously had to settle. <laughs> you know, but it's it's a denial of, you know, we all want to kind of be uh, undefeated. But you're always going to get defeated, whether it's, you know, Muhammad Ali being defeated by his, his Parkinson's or, you know, yeah. I think it's Parkinson's, but, you know. And a lot of it is, is that anchoring is the same thing. The crippling part of it is what you think others think of you as well. Mm. Like you have this like idea that, you know, I have to do It's not necessarily because this makes me happy because then I it's validating for others like in comedy that happens so much and I can't remember who said it to me but there's like a quote of like you'll worry a lot less about what people think of you when you realize how little they do <laughs> and it's like yeah that, that was such a freeing thing I'm like no one is no one is spending their evenings saying James Lovage is pretending that he got the main award when actually it was the <laughs> <laughs> like, like no one gives a shit 
but I still preface every time I talk about it with, um, you know, like, oh, I don't want to seem like I'm trying to sneak one past you. Like, mm. <laughs> and it, you know, and I think it's particularly acute with stand-up because you, as a, as a stand-up, as a successful stand-up, you go on stage and you make a load of people forget their lives and forget those little thoughts. And you kind of, and everyone goes out, if you've done your job well, everyone goes out feeling better, feeling more connected to other human beings, having laughed, feeling like, you know, the, the heaviness of the world isn't kind of there so much. Mm. And, you know, so if you're doing your job well, you're facilitating other people feeling okay, but but you're still left to kind of with those ravages yourself. You don't always come off stage thinking, you know, that, you know, you don't have the same euphoric experience that the audience might have. But I, I've got a, a joke that is exactly, that, that encapsulates this whole kind of thought process. So I, I had a whole bit in one of my shows about sexuality and that I think that sexuality is a, a kind of spectrum of bisexuality. Um, I am mostly straight, but you know, like I'm still, I still find certain men attractive. Would I sleep with them? More than likely not. But I had a whole bit of like, I'll take the whole buffet, please. Just I'll feed up on this and not touch that. And it was a fun bit and it like, and it was, uh, and it always got laughs and stuff like that. And I remember a comic making a snidey comment about, Oh, you just, you're just trying to get an angle, are you? You know, like, cause you're a straight white man, you need another angle. So now you're pretending that you're by it. And maybe they were just joking, but it really like ate away at me and being like, Oh God, is it like, is it that, does it look cynical? Like I'm telling this joke just so I've got an angle. But then I had audience members come up to me and one of them said, like, I really love that bit because I've always, I've always referred to my partner as my partner, not my boyfriend, because I'm worried what people will think. But like you kind of just owning that sexuality is not like, and just doing this bit like made me feel really comfortable. I'm not changing the world's perception of <laughs> sexuality and homosexuality or whatever it may be. But that little moment there, it's like, well, that joke's not only was it funny and making people laugh, but it made a positive impact in that person's life. So fuck that comic for giving me shit for it. You know, yeah. that was a really nice moment, you know, and it means a lot to me that, you know, someone kind of took something more than just I laughed a lot of the show, but I felt really, you know, like for that little joke empowered to kind of talk about stuff. So yeah, and it is, you know, it's where, not only where other people are coming from, but it's where you yourself are coming from. Listen, um, it's, it's 11.30, so we've, yeah. got to, we've got to wrap up. Listen, thank you so much for taking the time to, to chat. It really, really is appreciated. Um, there's a load of other questions that I want to ask you, including, there's a James Loveridge rugby player, right? Uh, there's a there is a James Lovridge rugby player who played for New Zealand. Uh, yeah, half, yeah, halfback. You play rugby. It was really confusing Googling you for researching this. It's like... James, is, I knew you were kind of a high-achieving kind of like... He didn't have a rugby career on the side as well. Yeah, in the 70s uh, for New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a guy that's that's a Welsh rugby player now, plays for Swansea. Well, and footballer. Yeah. Footballer. All right, yeah, fair yeah. enough. He had a rugby career and a football career yeah, as well. Yeah, and I always wanted him to break his legs because he was coming above me in Google search. But the worse his career did, the better my SEO was. <laughs> That's a very comedian's response to it. <laughs> Come on, I just want to own this part of the world. Just my own essay. Can I own my own name? What about that? Um, James, thanks so much. Um, I'll, um, I'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks, Barry. It's been an absolute pleasure. That was 
the uh, debonair Mr. Le- <laughs> James Loveridge. I don't know why I said debonair, but that was Mr. James Loveridge. I um, seek him out. He does. He, he still does a bit of performing here and there. He does um, comedy bingo, as you will have heard from the interview, and um, a musical bingo. Sorry, not comedy bingo, musical bingo. And um, he's out and about doing stuff. And obviously, he works for Dead Parrot and um, Dot Little Dot Studios, which uh, you can see him producing things in there it's um fascinating to hear somebody talk from that side of the comedy industry as well like you know managing a youtube channel and managing things as a producer i didn't have uh, an idea of what i was going to say after that other than thanks very much for listening and um support us on patreon if you can or give us a like i hope you're enjoying these podcasts as they come out and um and there's enough kind of difference to them to podcasts that you might have heard as i've said before angel comedy is is meant to be a community organization of comedians and so part of uh, the ethos of these podcasts is to kind of give people a bit of insight from lots of different perspectives in the comedy industry and hopefully these kind of interviews with like James do kind of you know give a bit of archaeology around the edges of the hows of people how they do it and and just not just the whys of people doing it which is often what other podcasts kind of focus on or personal biography which is what we will also do as you can tell so um I've been Barry Ferns And I will speak to you again on the other side of the next podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye, everyone. Everyone. Literally everyone. Goodbye, everyone. You're still listening. I did say goodbye once. I think I'll edit this out. Actually, I'll let Christian, the editor, decide whether we edit this out or not. There's a good chance that he might not, and he just lands me in it because he's continuing to not press the stop record button right now. But he's shaking his head knowing that he has the power to do that. All right. Bye, everyone.